turned it down, so I guess it means I have to get started. Um, maybe I'll set this up here. So this is going to be a little different. One, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody go back and forth between uh, stands, but we're doing that this morning. This whole morning is just a little bit different, right? So we came up. We had worship. First of all, you should have known it was different when you, instead of getting your like little quarter sheet, you got like this full manuscript. You're like, wow, what is going on? Like, man, we're going to learn today. Like, that's what's happening. Uh, yeah, we are diving deep into the Bible. And then we had this whole thing where we all came up and we were in the aisles and we were worshiping together. And it was this powerful experience. And even that was different. So if you're like new to Catalyst and this is your first Catalyst with us, this isn't I don't know what to tell you. Welcome to the family. You just never really know what to expect with us. Um, and even how we're going to approach this time this morning is going to be a little bit different. But, I'll, but what I'll say first is, you know, even as we were kind of in that worship time, in that worship space, um, I don't know, I think there's something about that that's deeply transforming, right? It's, it's impactful. It's meaningful, it changes us. We, we experience God in a way, and we're like, man, we're on this spiritual high. Like, this is where we want to be. And in some ways, it reminds me of what the church is meant to be in the first place. Like, what the actual purpose of the church is, right? So there's, like, this understanding that God has a mission, right? Like, it's about the expansion of his glory and the knowledge of his glory throughout the entire earth. Like, that is actually what God is after. And so really what, what comes with that, and the reason why we do what we do, the reason why you guys are in microchurches, the reason why you guys give your life to mission, is because there are things in the world that stand contrary to that kingdom. Right? So, like, we understand that, okay, if God is king, and there is his kingdom, the place where he reigns, where everything is kind of in accordance with his will, uh, and we look at the world around us, there are, there are things like abuse and divorce and death and sickness and lostness and all these other things that are contrary to the kingdom. And so we do those things because we understand that in the world to come, those things will no longer be an issue, right? Like in the world to come, when the, f the fullness of that kingdom gets consummated, there will be no death. There will be no sickness. There will be no lostness, no abuse, no greed, no poverty, no famine. And our lives are an extension of that. And so we have these spaces, and they're, they're reminders. It's almost like, uh, you know, I guess the Celts, um, they talk about thin places. The, the veil between heaven and earth just gets a little bit thinner. But then the reality is, is that we have to leave this space. And when we leave this space and we leave these doors... There is chaos, there is death, there is hardship, there is famine. And I guess the question that comes for us, especially for people coming out of Jesus Encounters, is, is how, do we, how are we supposed to respond when we have experiences like this? How are we supposed to enter into a chaotic world? And I think this text answers that for us this morning. You know, last week we started our look at Daniel, uh, kind of this character study. And if you remember correctly, part of the reason why we're doing that is because, you know, for the last couple of months, we've been talking about what it means to be elected exiles. 
Uh, and we've talked about Babylon as a metaphor for Rome, for our world, the, the things around us, this time and place. But, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about it as a, as a metaphor, as an idea, and it's another to look specifically at Babylon and what a faithful life in Babylon looks like. And that's where we get Daniel. And so I think last week Lucas gave us a great kind of an overarching look at the narrative of the Old Testament up to this point. There is God who calls a people to himself, says, you are my special possession. I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to the earth, right? He wants to use them as an example. Uh, and he forms a covenant with them. And as they're being delivered out of Egypt, going into the promised land, there are these promises, these blessings, but then also a warning that if you if you break this covenant, if you step outside of this covenant, these are the things that will happen to you. And what's interesting is, you know, 1 Samuel, there's a moment where, um, I think it's 1 Samuel, where Israel, for the first time, asked for a king. I think this is really fascinating. So Samuel, he's like, what? Like, so up until that point, there was, we, had, we had priests, you had prophets, you had judges, you had people who would go to God, and God was their king. And God would tell this person, this is what I desire of my people. And that person would become responsible for implementing that to the people. And so for the first time, this group of people that's supposed to be God's special possession, his, his chosen nation that's supposed to be different from the rest of the world around them, is asking to be like the rest of the world around them. And specifically, God says, okay, well, you know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be wars. They're going to drag you further away from me. All, all these things. He, he guarantees that these things will happen. And he says, but you know what? If that's what you want, you can have it. And we watch as the, the fissure in their relationship deepens. And this, essentially, is part of what happens. The kings that lead them further away from God break covenant. And now they're reaping all the warnings that came from that. And so this morning, instead of me speaking to us, I think it'd just be fun to just have a Bible study with each other. Um, I, I mean, this space, so some of you guys are maybe used to kind of traditional church settings where, you know, you come in and you just passively hear the word uh, because that's just what we do. There's worship, there's a sermon, and that's it. But this, this space, we don't have to do that. This is about connecting with each other. This is about engaging with Scripture. And I think we've had a lot of sermons lately. And so actually, I don't know, I just want you guys to dive into the Word. So you have a huge printout. Um, I think it might even be double-sided. Am I right? Am I wrong? Yeah. Yep. Yep, you are back in school. Some of y'all are like, man, I hate reading. Well, get the, yeah, get the, get the audio recording. Pull out your Bible app and listen to it at like two times the speed. Um, but, but this is what I'll do for us this morning. Before I, I'll kind of guide us through this study, but what I'll do is I actually want to read to you the whole chapter. That's dedication on my part. What can I say? I'm a servant. Servant of the servants of God. I don't have like Morgan Freeman's voice though, so it's not going to be as cool. Um, <laughs> my diaphragm. 
But in the Old Testament, so because it was kind of written in an oral culture, part of what you would see happen, even as I'll read this to you, is you'll notice that certain things are repeated over and over again. Certain phrases, words, things that just kind of act as an anchor. And that's because if they have to relay the story to each other orally, right, then you want things that help with the memorization of the story. Uh, And so maybe even as I read it, you'll be like, oh, wow, that jumps out to me. That that sticks out. That resonates. And that'll help with with the study. So... um, I'll read it, and then I'll give you guys time to engage with it a little bit deeper. Then I'll just kind of guide us through the time. So Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants a dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turned into piles of rubble. That escalated quickly, right? (laughs) You thought your boss was bad. (laughs) But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me what the dream, so tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No uh, where was I? Oh, no king, however great and mighty, has ever answered or asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued and put to, the, to put the wise men to death, and they were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Then Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he may interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then he praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever, Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge 
to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell you what the king's, would tell the king what his dream means. The king then asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no man, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has, shown the, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dreams and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. And if I remember correctly, this is, you might have this part cut off, but I'll, because I love you, I'll read it for you. This is the dream. So your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all mankind and the beasts of the fields and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partially of baked clay and partially of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will also have some of the strength of iron in it even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly mixed with iron and partly mixed with clay, so this kingdom will partly be strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people, it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself 
will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from the mountains, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron and bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great king, or the great God, has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. And this is where your sheet picks up again. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what we're going to do is I want to give you time to go back into the passage. The reason why the, the, the dream isn't necessarily printed for you is because that dream is important. And it has major implications for the rest of Daniel. But because we're looking at Daniel as a character, the dream, I don't want you to get too caught up in that. I want you to focus on Daniel. So as you go back through this passage, I want you to look at the different characters, and I want you to look at their actions. So the way that I do this when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, okay, Nebuchadnezzar as a character, he does this, 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 and this. And I'm tracking his actions throughout the course of the passage. Maybe the same for Daniel and then all the other characters involved. So I want to give you time, go ahead, go back through the passage, make a note of characters and what they're doing. I should probably pray for us, that'd probably be a good idea. Jesus, sorry I forgot to pray. That's, unfortunately, that's kind of the, the rule and metric of my life, is I often forget to pray. And yet, God, when we do pray, we remind ourselves once again that we are helpless. We are helpless to make situations work out in our favor. We're helpless to even understand your word. We need you. I need you. And in this moment, as we re-engage this passage, would you show us what it is that you want to show us this morning from Daniel 2? God, you are a revealer of mysteries. That's what this passage says. And would you reveal to us the mystery of what it is that you have for us this morning? So I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Cool. Dive in, and I will call us back soon. So this time is for you individually, and then... We'll, we'll discuss it in groups. So go ahead, read it.
take a few more minutes, keep studying it individually, then we'll transition to a time with each other. So you don't want to like get in that discussion and be like, oh, I didn't actually read the passage. Don't be that person. The person who lets the group down in the group project. All right, go ahead. If you haven't already, now you can kind of transition to a time. Maybe group up. So this is going to be important. Grab maybe five people around you. You might have to, like, sequester yourself away from other people. So don't just be by yourself. Grab five people, huddle together, talk about what you see, what you see different characters doing. If you see someone around you who's by themselves, grab them in. Might have to turn around, face each other.
All right, you guys look like you're having a good discussion. So I want to throw another little wrench in the equation. So if you're looking at this passage, I don't know if you caught it, but one of the things that sticks out to me essentially is that there are these, there's a situation that's out of control, right? So like Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he's in, he, he can't control it. He has, there's nothing that he can do. He's helpless against it, right? And all of a sudden, because of that, that kind of implicates Daniel and his crew, right? Now they are part of a situation that's beyond their control, but the responses between the two are very different. And so I, what I want you to do now in your groups is I want you to think about a situation in your life that feels chaotic, that feels out of your control, and what's your response been to that situation. So go ahead, take some time, dialogue in your group, getting personal, getting seen. That's okay. Share.
hopefully you guys are sharing and you're sharing deeply. Some of, if you're midways in here, so midway is like hormones, hormones, that is out of my control. What do I do with that? <laughs> um, I understand, I understand midway. So I wanna, I wanna also, so I wanna give us some time I want to give us some time, because if you're looking at Daniel's actions, right? So Nebuchadnezzar, he has a bad dream. There's something outside of his control. What he does is he grabs other people, but then there's like this, this threat, right? There's a, he, because he's out, it's out of his control, he threatens the lives of other people and orders the execution of an entire group of people, right? Like, we don't necessarily have that power, I hope, um, well, I guess, I don't know. That's a whole other discussion. But Daniel, on the other hand, he responds differently, right? Like he responds with what the text says is wisdom and tact. He asks questions. He consults his friends. They pray together. They, they have a moment of, of praising God for the, the revelation that comes. He, even when he goes to the king, he, he goes to the king and gives him, um, I don't know, he tells him the dream. But before he even does that, there's... This is about God. This is about his glory. This is about his namesake. Um, and so, I don't know. I want us to think about the, the situations that go on in our lives. And, and, yes, this is what maybe wisdom and tact look like in that particular situation, in that day, in that age. But I want you guys to spend some time together. What does wisdom and tact look like now in our context, in, our, in the, the climate that we live in, maybe in some of the situations that you have going on? So take some time. I want to figure out, okay, what would be the equivalent of a Daniel response in our day and our age? So go ahead, take some time, do that, and then I'll kind of wrap us up.
All right, I hate to break up a good discussion. I don't want to intrude, but I know we got places to go, stuff to do. I think word on the street is Popeye's chicken sandwiches back. Yeah. So, and they're open on Sunday. So, there's that. There's, there's no, no shade to Chick-fil-A. Cool. So let me, let me wrap up our study. Just, uh, just a few thoughts, maybe just, maybe just one thought that I have. So as we're, we're looking at this passage, if there's one exhortation that I want to make, if there's one call, one, one challenge that I want to issue, it's this. Is that the God of heaven and the gods of Babylon are in conflict. And how you respond to chaos reveals who you're actually aligned with. You see, Babylon is a place characterized by fear, helplessness, and brutality, subject to abuses of power that go unquestioned. And while we may not live under such a regime, we know what it is to live in a world that's governed by fear, to see brutality that leaves people feeling helpless. We know what it is to feel helpless in situations that are out of our control. And maybe like Israel, you're wondering, where is God in the midst of it? And the temptation for us is to respond in kind, to like keep the cycle going. And yet Daniel shows us another way. Instead of responding to this fearful, helpless, and brutal world with more of the same, he responds with wisdom and tact. He interrupts the cycle. Rather than anger or anxiety, he asks questions, he gathers friends, he prays, and as concerned as he is for his own life, he's more concerned about the glory of God in the moment. And in doing so, he not only saves his life, he saves the lives of an entire group of people. And when he's granted favor and position, he leverages that for his friends. He responds with wisdom and tact. You know, the other day I was on, I think it was Facebook or one of those social media channels, and I saw, and you've probably seen it, this, this, this teacher, or I guess he's a football coach, who stops the school shooting. Have you seen that video? It's crazy. So this kid, 18 years old, shows up to school with a shotgun and is walking around campus ready to harm somebody. Kids are running out, teachers are, they call him because I guess he also does security at that school. And he goes, and, and, and the way he tells the story, he kind of sizes it up in the moment. And, and, and instead of like running away or trying to like subdue the man with violence, he just lunges towards him, puts his hand on the gun, and embraces the kid. And the kid just kind of breaks down in his arms. And the way he tells the story, he says, I felt compassion for the kid. I told him that I was there to save him. I was there for a reason and that this is a life worth living. He doesn't run away. He doesn't respond with violence. He responds with wisdom and tact. And I think there's something about wisdom and tact that when we see it played out, it leaves us dumbfounded. We recognize it as otherworldly, that the kingdom somehow has come a little bit nearer to us in the process. It steals our breath. You know, uh, Martin Luther King, there was one time he was telling a, a speech somewhere. Uh, and of course, you know, his whole thing is nonviolence. And as he's giving the speech, he actually gets stabbed 
in the chest by somebody. Uh, I think, was it with a pen? It might have been with a knife. I don't remember the story exactly, but he gets stabbed in making a speech. And, like, the way that history records is that if he would have, like, done so much as sneezed, he would have died. Like, that would have been the end of it. But so he's in a crowd of people. He gets stabbed. And, of course, like, a whole group of people are like, oh, my gosh, he just got stabbed. Like, we have to take down that person. And in that moment, Martin Luther King, even though he's, like, stabbed, he calms the crowd down and reminds them, actually, no, it's moments like this that we need to practice nonviolence the most. That's wisdom intact. Wisdom intact is Beth Moore reminding us that she serves Jesus and not men and calling for civility on both sides of the aisle, when even those people who are on her side. That's wisdom intact. Guys, in those moments, we're tempted to respond to fear and brutality with more fear and more domination. We collude with the empire. And that's not to whom we belong. You belong to the kingdom of God. And when you respond with wisdom intact, you testify to an unshakable faith, an unsinkable hope that was never anchored in the here and now. A hope that was always somewhere else where neither moth nor rust destroys, where robbers can't steal. When you respond to chaos with wisdom, you testify to the fickleness and the futility of Babylon. You know, I think if there's one leader who reminds me more than anyone of Daniel, uh, it's probably Lucas. I mean, part of being a leader is managing the stress and the anxiety of any given thing that you lead. And you know this as a leader. If you lead a microchurch, you know that there are certain things that come to your door that you absorb so that the people in your microchurch don't have to deal with. Like, you're keeping them in mind. Uh, and, and I see Lucas do that time and time again. I don't know all the things that wash on his shore, but occasionally when I do hear the situations of the things that he gets into uh, and the, the way that he responds with wisdom intact, I'm dumbfounded. I have no idea how he does it. I mean, there's so many opportunities where he can respond to Babylon with Babylon, and instead he embodies the kingdom. I mean, and I think you, I think we all kind of see Lucas and we know that he's, he's young, right? Like we know that he's younger, but we don't actually know just how young he is because there's like a depth to his soul and a wisdom that he carries that's beyond his years. And that doesn't just come from having read books or having gone to school. It, it, it's a result of a private life that's way deeper than a public life. It's God-given. I think if there's someone who embodies this passage more than, more than me, definitely, I definitely think that's Lucas. In some ways, I think he's the best of us. He had no idea I was going to say that, by the way, so this isn't like a, a promotion for, for him. <laughs> but I do think it's true. You know what I think it is? I think it's that, you know, I, I don't have all the time in the world to unpack this, but as I was reflecting, if the if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, I think responding in wisdom intact is anchored in having a view of God's sovereign hand in history. That actually, 
when we recognize that, yes, God allows a certain amount of agency, but ultimately he's the one who's guiding the train on the tracks and he makes sure that it doesn't fall off. When we know that, we can believe that God is up to something behind the scenes, even in this moment. So like there is our life, the chaos of this moment, and above this moment is God behind the scenes. And when we're anchored in that, we can be a non-anxious presence in an anxiety-filled world. And when I say that, I'm not talking about like, clinical anxiety like that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about the anxiousness that we carry just the general nervousness the frantic the fear that we carry and i think that's maybe what we see in daniel in this moment and even what i see in lucas often is that they're anchored in god's sovereign hand in history And the beautiful thing is if we lack wisdom and we want it, the Bible says all we have to do is ask. We ask for it. I mean, if you were to ask me what I need prayer for nine times out of ten, I will never know what to tell you. I'm like, my life is a prayer request. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but But I will always say I will never refuse a prayer for wisdom. In a world of fear, helplessness, brutality, we need wisdom. I need wisdom when fights break out on my street and I'm running into the fray having no idea what I'm actually going to do because I can't fight. I have muscles so I don't have to fight. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We can edit that out of the tape. I need wisdom when the cops are on the verge of arresting my neighbor for no apparent reason. I need wisdom when my brother calls me on the verge of a mental breakdown. I need wisdom when a homeless couple comes to my door asking for assistance. Now, I don't know what to tell them. I don't know where to point them. And you see the cycle of poverty. And you see just how impossible it is to climb out. I need wisdom, guys. But here's the thing, so do you. Some of you are coming off a Jesus encounter, and a real life awaits outside of these doors. All your vices, all your temptations are outside of this door. And some of you are walking with those in the throes of addiction, and you have no idea how to help them. You know what it is to feel powerless. Some of you have kids, and you're doing the best that you can, but you recognize that you can't control them, that you can't protect them. Some of you have teenagers, and you're like, man, I definitely need some wisdom and patience. (laughs) And guys, the only way that we're going to survive all these things that we can't control is with wisdom. And that's not something that comes from books as much as I love them. something that only comes from God. What are the situations that feel out of your control? How is God calling you to respond? The God of heaven and earth and the gods of Babylon are in conflict. And how you respond reveals who you're aligned with. We need Daniel responses. So this morning as you come to the table, I want you to remember the wisdom of God that looks foolish to the world. In this world characterized by fear, helplessness, brutality, Jesus asserts his power in surrendering his body. And he he almost acts as a Trojan horse to the kingdom of darkness. And at just the right time, he ransacks the place. 
in the moment of his greatest weakness, he had never been more powerful. And in the moment where he looked so defeated, he had never been more in victory. He had already won. This is God's way. And when we take and we come to this table and we take the bread and the cup, we say that this is also our way. We reject Babylon and we embrace the wisdom of God, aligning ourselves with his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Jesus, it doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't even matter how much money we don't have. It doesn't matter how much health or vitality or prosperity or whatever, Jesus, regardless of where we sit, there will always be things that are out of our control. And God, some of us, we fight for it, we yearn for it, we try to do everything in our power to manage the world around us because we know it is out of our control. And Jesus, what I'm asking for you, from you this morning, is that you would grant us wisdom to know how to, how to navigate this world. God, there is so much anger. There is so much hatred and division. And God, that's true of society, but it's also true of the church and the anger that is on the outside of the world. It, it, it's, infecting your, it's infecting your people. It's infecting your body. And Jesus, I'm asking that you would make us better than that. That Jesus, that in this chaotic, anxiety-filled world, where it's easier to take up arms against each other than to give each other a hug, Jesus, would you give us wisdom? God, would you help us to see the best in each other? And God, would it come, would it be otherworldly? in those moments where, where people recognize that there's something different in our response, would we point back to you, Jesus? Would our wisdom intact be a testament to your kingdom? God, everything we have, everything is, we, we are is yours. We've never needed you more than we need you now. So come, Jesus. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea of chaos. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old kingdom of things has passed away. And Jesus, until then, until that moment, death, chaos, confusion just seems to reign around us. And we don't know what to do. And we are governed by anxiety and fear 
and hatred and we just look like the world and Jesus we're sorry we need your way not our ways we need your response not our response God would you make us not natural supernatural God in the way that we respond we need you to find light and darkness and peace in the storm and wisdom and confusion God I'm going to ask as you come to the table this morning that you would identify that one place that God has placed on your heart that is out of your control in your family or in your work or just in your heart it's just, it's just beyond you and it needs divine wisdom it needs the way of Daniel it needs the way of the kingdom to interrupt it And then as you take the body and blood of Jesus, I'm going to ask that you would commit to his way, the way of Daniel. What is it next week? Is it speaking with wisdom intact? Is it asking more questions? Is it inviting your microchurch into it? There is no Daniel response without a microchurch community. Is it exalting the name of Jesus in the middle of the kings of Babylon. God, we're asking right now, would you do that thing in, in this table moment? Would your way become our way? We lay down the ways of Babylon, the ways of our nature, the ways of anxiety and fear for your way. Because on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread. And when you had given thanks, you broke it and said, this is my way. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, he poured it out, and he said, this is the covenant in my blood, a new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it. For in doing so, we proclaim the death of Jesus until he returns. We proclaim this is the way of King Jesus until he returns. This is our way until he returns. This is the way of Jesus Christ and his people. And when you're ready, as we worship and pray, when you're ready to lay down the way of Babylon and take up and align with the way of the kingdom, come, the body and blood of Jesus given for you.